The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance on News Talk. The European Union's disjointed response to the Israel-Hamas conflict is a marker of just how contentious the region's history is. It took EU leaders hours to agree on calling for humanitarian pauses at a summit last week. Meanwhile, the UK Labour Party leader Keir Starmer's similar refusal to call for a ceasefire has sparked major divisions on the left. The language we use when referring to Israel and Palestine speaks volumes about the polarising effect it has on countries and individuals alike. Now, to talk about this, we're joined by political commentator and columnist Fergus Findlay and the associate editor of Politico, Suzanne Lynch. Good morning and welcome. Uh, Let's go to you, Suzanne, first of all, and uh, the apparent disunity among members of the EU sparked, I suppose, by Ursula von der Leyen. Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's undoubtedly the case the EU is highly divided on this issue and has always been. And the fact that Ursula von der Leyen decided to take that trip to Israel, she did in the early days of the war without consulting either the head of the European Council or member states, you know, caused a backlash and I suppose showed a a certain level of of political misjudgment about how divisive this issue was going to be. And as you explained there, EU leaders got together last week and this issue overshadowed all their other discussions. They were meeting for two days in Brussels and they agonised over language, over specific terms in this text that they always issue at the end of a summit um, with certain countries not allowing, you know, really advocating not for the the word ceasefire to be included and other countries including Ireland, Spain, that tradition have taken a more pro-Palestinian stance uh, advocating for that but ultimately they did not get their way and the countries who prefer the idea of a humanitarian pause or plural pauses uh, they they won the day and that language was agreed now yeah. I mean what really happened was that it, this wasn't even covered really in the Middle East media you know it kind of was an example of how limited the EU ultimately is on this um, words matter as you say the EU's position does matter but in terms of the actual day-to-day progress of the um, war, it didn't seem to make much of an mm. impact. Now, the, the question of ceasefire versus pause, uh, you can have a pause by one side, um, but a ceasefire demands that both sides agree that they will stop the hostilities against each other. I mean, is that too nuanced an understanding of it? For example, if Israel pause, which allows humanitarian to get in, Um, It does not require Hamas to stop their hostilities, whereas a ceasefire would. Mm, that's certainly definitely part of it. And the the reason a number of countries, including Germany and Austria mainly, were against this idea of ceasefire is they feel, um, in their perspective, it would give, uh, embolden Hamas in a way. That's the way they see it. They still are saying that Israel has a right to respond to this attack. Now, that may change as we go on, but, you know, the U, they are very much in line with the US on this, with the UK. And, and what happens at these EU meetings is that it's not really happening in a vacuum. The capital, Berlin, in Paris, they're discussing this really uh, behind the scenes with other big players. Now, very interestingly, at the UN, you did have a call for the ceasefire, um, but that really wasn't heeded. Obviously, it, it hasn't happened. But you've got a lot more countries within the broader UN community who do advocate for a ceasefire. Mm-hmm. But some countries, for example, Germany abstained on that. They felt that there wasn't enough criticism of Hamas in that. So it just goes to show all these different constituencies, these different groupings of countries are coming together to discuss this. But, you no, really, there is no sign that the ceasefire language would be embraced either in the UK or the US or the EU um, at the moment, unless things could, of course, drastically change. Mm. And 
the historical uh, connections that different countries might have to either Israel, the formation of Israel, and of course what we know the Nazis did in Germany and Austria was part of those anti-Semitic attitudes. But anti-Semitism existed uh, quite a lot across right uh, right across Eastern Europe. So. You know, how close to Israel are some countries and how Mm. averse to Israel are others? Mm. Well, I think because of the specific experience of the Holocaust, Germany in particular uh, is extremely pro-Israel. It is basically part of its foreign policy now. And it's interesting, there's a coalition government, a left-leaning coalition government, really, Schultz is from the Socialist Party in Germany. Um, and, and they're all kind of, there's nuances, but but really the government is behind this pro-Israel stance. Austria, again, has been very strong from the beginning on this. Now, it, it's quite ironic in a way. Austria, along with Ireland, is one of the three or four neutral countries uh, in the EU. And, you know, somebody commented to me in Brussels, was interesting, going, isn't it interesting that the two new, most neutral countries in some ways have a very strong stance on this. Uh, you know, Austria pro-Israeli, Ireland pro-Palestinian. I mean, I'm not really sure the reasons for that, but it, it is true that this particular issue is extremely emotive. Um, now, you're right about the Eastern European countries. Generally, they'd be more on the pro-Israel side. For example, the Czech Republic uh, is, uh, took a very strong stance in a lot of meetings in the EU, uh, so did Hungary. France is very interesting here because traditionally France, obviously a hugely important member of the EU, has been more uh, aware of the nuances, has been more aware of the Palestinian perspective. Um, and it still is to an extent, like it did not ban aid from its own country in the early days uh, of the war, like Germany did, for example. But France has its own serious problems with anti-Semitism. So Macron is, you know, uh, treading a very yeah. delicate line here on this issue. And he also um, uh, has the largest Jewish population of any country in the EU. In Absolutely. France. So he's Absolutely. got to be sensitive so- to that as well. Exactly. These domestic concerns here. I mean, in Germany, it's very interesting. It's now playing into the whole issue about migration, which had had been creeping up the political agenda anyway in the last few months. And now we had... Uh, the, the deputy uh, chancellor, Lee Habeck, saying, you know, suggesting that they were trying to quell pro-Palestinian protests and implying that maybe people could be deported who were not legally had the right to live in Germany, who were uh, involved in some of these protests that they have banned. So it, it's quite interesting the way it's emerging, particularly uh, in Germany. And you're seeing this clash of this traditional pro-Israeli stance, but a big Muslim, a, a more of a pro-Palestinian uh, community, particularly in, in pockets of Berlin. So it's it's a very again, tense situation for, for the government in Berlin too. Now, uh, Ursula von der Leyen, when she became the president, uh, she was a compromise candidate that took a little bit of horse trading uh, for her to be appointed. But then she came into her own during the pandemic and she, she led Europe and also when Russia invaded Ukraine or further invaded Ukraine, I should say, um, she showed leadership there, a united EU front on all of that. Has she been damaged by her trip to Israel and her statements? I think she has. I mean, it depends which country, you know, there are different views on what she did. Some people think it's fine, but she has definitely been damaged in terms of her political judgment. I I think it's interesting that when she was appointed as the head of the European Commission, there were some whispers at the time that she had never been a prime minister before, that she was, yes, she had been the German defence minister, but she wasn't that politically um, experienced. Uh, And I think that kind of showed in this situation. I think she didn't uh, see in advance that this could be controversial 
controversial. We know that she just decided to go to Israel and didn't consult anyone really. And I think that's her instinctive German identity kicked in. She's also advised by a lot of uh, German advisors on that. Um, so she has tried to settle things since then. She's, of course, talked a bit more about, um, you know, the situation of, of innocent civilians in Gaza. Um, but I mean, I think one of it's been it's been dominating discussion in Brussels. One of the interesting arguments that her advisors have put out there, which is, is, is rationally does make sense. They said, well, you know, nobody complained when she went to Ukraine and represented EU foreign policy. So why are people saying now she shouldn't be representing foreign policy just because certain people don't agree mm. with the specific situation? I mean, it's a, so there's a broader issue about who speaks for Europe, who represents EU foreign policy. She isn't really supposed to at the head of the European Commission. That's more the job of the EU high representative, Joseph Borrell, and Charles Michel represents member states. So, you know, there are criticisms that she overstepped her mandate there. Mm-hmm. All right, Suzanne, thank you very much uh, for that. Uh, Suzanne Lynch is Associate Editor at Politico. Fergus Finlay, listening to all of that. Uh, the question of language and how to formulate statements that everyone can adhere to, um, maybe not keeping anybody happy. Well, it's immensely difficult, um, hugely difficult. I mean, you, I was listening with great interest to you and Suzanne, and isn't it wonderful to have somebody with her expertise uh, about, you know, what's going on? Um, but, but you both used phrases pro-Israel, pro-Palestinian, and I understand both of those terms. There is no democratic country, as I understand it, in, in the world that is pro-Hamas. Uh, there are people in different countries that are pro-Hamas, but there's no democratic country that is pro-Hamas. Um, and if this was couched as a pro-Hamas or anti-Hamas uh, argument, there'd be no issue about language at all. Mm. Um, but the truth is, I think, that every democratic country in the world uh, was uh, horrified at what Hamas did on October the 7th. Every democratic country in the world uh, was willing to support uh, an Israeli response uh, and saw an Israeli response as inevitable and entirely supportable. The, the, the latter truth, though, is I think that most democratic countries in the world are becoming increasingly concerned and horrified at the disproportionate nature of what they see as the Israeli response. Um, the, the increasing number of children, of pregnant mothers, the commands to evacuate hospitals, all of those kind of things seem, um, you know, way beyond response and therefore begin to demand a different kind of language. Now, the problem you identified exactly, Pat, the problem with calling for a ceasefire. A ceasefire is something that has to be negotiated. It has to be negotiated on the ground. A ceasefire is something that will happen when a negotiator gets an agreement from Hamas and from the Israeli Defence Forces that it's time for a ceasefire. And that's not going to be easy to achieve. In the meantime, uh, there will be no unilateral ceasefire. And I think everybody you know, involved in this process knows that it's pointless calling on Israel um, to lay down its arms, as it were, for a week, a month or whatever, uh, or a day. Uh, unless Hamas agreed to do the same thing. Um, and, and nobody, I think, believes that that's going to happen. So, and that's the difficulty you end up with in, in, in a situation like this. I think people have goodwill. And I, 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 I don't know anybody who would have been around that, um, table of, uh, EU prime ministers and foreign ministers and, and all of them. I don't know anybody who would lack goodwill in a situation like mm-hmm. this who wants the conflict to continue and who wants, uh, you know, children to be slaughtered in the way that they're being slaughtered. Um, 
and they don't know what to do. They just don't know what to do. The more you demand of Israel, and I understand this entirely, the more you demand of Israel, the less likely Israel is likely to say, yes, sir, no, sir, we'll do what you wish, sir. Um, uh, the, um, there are huge problems within Israel around all this, uh, and they go way beyond the use of language. But even the language that is being used, ben Benjamin Netanyahu is using language, which in my judgment is the language of massacre and the language of dehumanizing. He, he talks about we are the people of the light, they are the people of darkness. He talks about wars between good and evil uh, and so on. And he lumps the other side, let's put it that way, uh, under one umbrella, which is they are the evil, they are the dark. Uh, and, and that is incredibly dehumanizing language. Yeah. That is the language of extermination and it's the language of genocide. Um, and and it is the language that has been used about the Jewish people for centuries and the language behind the Holocaust, that kind of the darkness yeah. against the light uh, is, is terribly frightening. And language. you also have to bear in mind that at the, as long as this war goes on, Netanyahu's political position is safe. Uh, if he uh, has a, an, an astonishing victory against Hamas or claims one, he might also consider his political position to be reinforced and he mightn't end up in jail, which is one of the possibilities that awaits him anyway. There, I mean, this is the incredible stupidity in a way of and the callousness and barbarity of what Hamas did. Um, they subjected their own people to this. They, they knew when they carried out that atrocity, those atrocities on October the 7th, exactly what would happen. Um, and, and they knew that they couldn't win. They knew that they could inflict terrible pain and carnage in, in over a short period. They knew they couldn't win. That wasn't the purpose of the exercise. The purpose of the exercise was to uh, drive as many countries and people as they could apart. And that's the, always the object of terror, um, to, to, you know, to divide and frighten and polarize. And, and I mean, the, the huge cruel irony of all this it, it would be that if, if Hamas's only victory was to secure the political future of Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, how, how absurd that would yeah. be. But that's the way it looks and, at the moment. F finally, uh, Fergus, for people who are appalled at what um, Israel has done disproportionately, they would say, in response to what happened to them, I, I would just like to again do the, the statistical sum where what happened to Israel on October the 7th to happen in Ireland, it would have meant 800 people died in one day. It would have meant 150 people died at electric picnic. That is the scale of what we are talking yeah. about. So yeah, yeah. to try and get people to understand the visceral anger that Israeli, Israelis no, would and, and when you when you look at history and look at culture and look at, um, uh, you know, the plight of Jews for centuries and centuries. I mean, uh, there were Jewish families who came to Britain after the um, uh, after the Holocaust, who came as as refugees to Britain, and who for two generations always kept a packed suitcase in their bedrooms because of the fear that they would have to move on, because of the fear of another prog pogrom, another campaign of uh, you know intimidation and, and and all of that. And that that is what Jewish people have lived with throughout their history. So you can't, you can't in any sense, uh, 
you know, I, and you can't make a kind of that. That was, the, I think, the mistake that Paddy Cosgrave made. You can't make a moral equivalent between Hamas, what Hamas did, and the initial Israeli response. Mm. Um, uh, it, 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 it is just absurd. You, if you, I mean. I was involved in for years, and forgive me if I'm dragging this out, Pat, but the importance of language. I can remember sitting, uh, when John Major was Prime Minister of Great Britain, I can remember sitting uh, as part of a team that came over from Dublin every week to talk about language that might facilitate peace in Northern Ireland. And we fought for days and days and days, meeting after meeting after meeting, about particular phrases, terms of art, they were called. If you agreed them, they were written into a text. If you didn't, they disappeared forever. Um, and we eventually, after many, many, many hours of discussion, settled on a phrase which became a kind of a key phrase in the peace process. And the phrase was parity of esteem and equity of treatment. Every word of that phrase was fought over. When we arrived at it, it became a basis uh, for, for peace. Perhaps that could be borrowed, Fergus, for the current conflict when they do eventually uh, get around the table. We have to leave it there. Fergus Finley, political commentator and columnist, thank you very, very much for joining us. The Pat Kenny Show with Aviva Insurance. Weekdays at 9am on News Talk.